Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Is that good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I, mean, I have a plan. I like this All shit. It is awesome. You know, it's exciting. Dance off, bro. It is your Me destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And today we are kicking off season three by talking about Baby Driver, Edgar Wright's most recent film. And we're going to actually talk about a little bit of Spider-Man, I think, too. Might as yeah. well get that out of the way because we're not going to be Whatever's going. Yeah. <laughs> whatever's cool right but, now. What are, what are the kids talking about? I hear that they, they like their <laughs> Spider-Mans. Uh, but before we get into what we want to talk about, I'm going to check in with Lee. How you doing, sir? Uh, I'm great. Uh, fuck. Season three is what? When was the last time we were recording? Like April or something like that. So what's happened? I I got married. I uh, right. I went to America, uh, and and spent a long ass time there. <laughs> and uh, I did. I, I took a while out to do some screenwriting, so I got two screenplays done. Uh, and then I got back into all the the film stuff again and started building this whole career deal oh yeah and i'm quitting my job in august yeah there's, there's plenty of things to, that happened in the in that small interim it seems almost like it would you know like it didn't see when sat down to do it it felt like oh it's only been like um a, a couple of weeks since we did the podcast and like yeah, in a couple of weeks i managed to upend my life so that's pretty good <laughs> definitely yeah, I saw the pictures of your wedding. It looked really fun, but I'm pretty sure that fun is one of those masks that you put on when you're getting married, and at the end of it, you're just—it's just a fucking relief oh to not God. have to go through it anymore. No idea. Just the idea of the wedding itself. The uh, it was a really good day, and it was yeah, it looked like it. It was it was definitely genuinely fun, but at the same right. time, it doesn't compare to the sheer relief, <laughs> as you said, there you of go. just it being over. Just even just financially knowing that. Yeah. that fucking vampire of, of any change <laughs> was it was it had been slain and we could go on to well okay granted we went on to then an expensive honeymoon but once that was dead that's when things started to feel a little better <laughs> yeah in your honeymoon I, I saw pictures that was really cool i we got an unfair amount of of views on the video you posted with regards to Wonder Woman, it was the thing I was I couldn't believe it. Like it was it had been viewed like five hundred and some odd times, and I was like, what? "Why is Lee's video getting so many views?" Was yeah, it? And, yeah, no, it was insane, man. That that thing was on a trend for I don't know how long <laughs> on the Atlantic, and I just kept seeing the numbers. I don't I don't I'm not a numbers guy. I don't look at stats all that much. Although I, I do kind of check and see if we're 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 doing it any good yeah. you know mm-hmm. but I, I noticed the week after that thing came out like you could see like everything was in the red it oh, went no. down 650% <laughs> and fuck down. I didn't see any of that shit I was just like but it was funny it I was, was in the funny. I was in the desert and wanted an excuse to make a video so I was like yeah this is a weird scenario <laughs> yeah. anyway so no same thing for me I mean uh, I, I, I can't believe like summer I'm already halfway done and it pisses me off because I can see the new semester creeping up no. on me and I'm terrified right now. I'm We've like, had so Whoa. little time to really take it all in. That's such Exactly, terrible. yeah. My my girlfriend Leslie just started work again on mm. Monday and I'm I'm just kinda 
I'm like, fuck, she had two weeks off and she's already back to work. And we, oh my God. but we did have a fun week with my parents. You know, we went over there and, and we, we, we were able to rest quite a bit. Uh, but I mean, it's just so weird because she's coming down from, from her work week. So she needs that week to really take it easy. Yeah. And then after that, the week we got back to our place, we were useless. Like we were like, fuck, we got to pick up now. We got to try to do so many different other things. She wanted to like get her, her yarn business up and going, you know, and oh my God. she did manage like to dye weeks, a little bit oh, of yarn and that's it's just not enough time. No it was way, man. Terrible. I mean, there, there has to be this point where if you want to actually become productive, you have to go to, through a series of stages or first you need rest, then you need to get bored. Then exactly. you can be active and, and you have to... And the board phase can be as long as as short as a week and as long as a month, and you can't yeah. predict it every time. So that's why you just need to set aside like this whole block just to be able to then be creative afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so two weeks is never going to cut it. <laughs> that's devastating. exactly, and I feel I feel exactly like like you're telling me. But I I, I go through those stages too. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I've been able to uh, to watch a bunch of movies. I went to the theater a couple of times. I've been reading. And it's funny, I had talking to you because I just recently bought myself a book on the works of Christopher Nolan. There's a series of of uh, you know uh, critical essays on on his his yes. uh, films. And I sent you a picture. I was like, check it out. And he was like, oh my god, that looks like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I, I like essays in like small bursts. And sometimes when right. I get one, like with today's episode, actually, just a little foreshadowing. When I right. find a book that really grabs me, I, I, I adore it. I can't wait to own it. And like, I'll read it a hundred fucking times if it's really good. But right. it, it's like once in a blue moon. And it has to grab me conceptually. And when I just right. look at your, you sent me a picture of a fucking list of like seven or eight Nolan essays, yeah. all with long-ass essay titles, and you were like, hmm, Fun Friday, or whatever the fuck you were talking about. <laughs> I was yeah, like, man. oh, oh, I kind of threw up in my mouth, like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> just like, the stress of it. It was like, oh, it's it's just like university when I didn't do the reading at that time either, and now it's, it's creeping back into my life. What have I done? Who is this uh, nutcase <laughs> I started to work with? <laughs> I don't know. I find that shit fun, man. I When I wake up in the morning, I I have this twenty minute window because I this is the way that the, the my family works. I wake up first, and then I have to wake everyone up mm-hmm. because just that's the way they elected our lives should be. Right. And so I put on the alarm, and then Leslie says, "Give me five more minutes." <laughs> but what she's really saying is. Wake me up in twenty. There's a whole process, mm. and I'm fine with it because I, I can barely sleep. Well, you're, you're up anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you because know, I'm back from fighting crime, and so I, uh, I I have that twenty minute window where I can sit down, and I love reading those like a little bit of those essays in the morning. Right. And I remember my dad when I came home with the book, he just flipped it open to see what it was like. He just looked through the titles, and he looked up at me. Put the book down and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It, it's, it just said everything it needed to say. It was like, yeah, I, you and your weird shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, someday, someday, I pray you'll take a day off. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, you know what? That actually makes more sense. Just mm. like stop thinking, Jason. Mm-hmm. This is just too much now. But I mean, look, I, who's kidding? I, I'm not. I'm not a smart guy. It's it blows because I'm trying to fill my brain with information. But when it comes time to communicate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we put ourselves in the one medium neither of us are prepared for. <laughs> there you go. Atlantic SC. Yeah. The one medium that we're, we're not, not prepared, prepared for. for. 
There you go. That's a great tagline we're using from now on. Shall we play the trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming? Why not? Cool. So we'll be back after the trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming with a, a mini review, just a initial reaction thoughts or whatever. And then after that, we'll get into Baby Driver. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm Andrew. And I'm Bernadette, and we're the AB Film Review. We're a weekly film review and discussion podcast from Perth, Western Australia. We're a married couple who like to spend our Saturday evenings avoiding reality by discussing and often arguing about the latest films and some classics. And getting closer to divorce. Uh, you can find us on the Podbros Network at podbros.com, also on Twitter at AB Film Review, Facebook AB Film Review, and our website abfilmreview.com. Underoos! Hey everyone. I get to keep the suit? Of course. Doesn't fit me. Just don't do anything I would do. And definitely don't do anything I wouldn't do. There's a little gray area in there and that's where you operate. What's up guys? Wait a minute. You want the real Avengers. But this does not mean you're an Avenger, in case you were wondering. Oh. That's not a hug. I'm just grabbing the door for you. Oh. All right, kid. Good luck out there. The world's changing, boys. Time we change, too. Listen, Peter. Forget the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. I'm sick of him treating me like a kid. But you are a kid. This is my chance to prove myself. Don't mess with me. Because I will kill you and everybody you love. that you guys enjoyed the trailer for Spider-Man Homecoming, a film that stars Tom Holland, Robert Downey Jr., Michael Keaton, fabulous Michael Keaton, uh, Marissa Tomei, and uh, the kid that was in Grand Budapest Hotel. Forgot his name. Really? Oh, I was, oh he was Flash. I, didn't, I knew I knew his face, and I didn't even fucking didn't register at yeah, the time. Uh, of course. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know his name. <laughs> All right, so... Um, Initial reaction. First thoughts, dear sir. Uh, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed this film. I'm a long time... So I, I would say Spider-Man's my favorite superhero, so I always have to sort of bi- do a bias check when it comes to Spider-Man, because I just... Even the amazing Spider-Man films, the, the these corporate monster machine movies written by, by like a committee, I enjoyed on a first watch because I was just happy to see Spider-Man on screen because I, I, I just always like him, even when he was played by a 30-year-old. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. But um, I like Spider-Man movies, but I've never loved a, any one Spider-Man movie. I, uh, I, I've always preferred the cartoon version, really, more than any of the others. And uh, I think this is the first film that really did its best to get as close to what I imagined Spider-Man to be, which is right. this sort of perpetual, idealistic teenager character who we end up... Who, who deals with large versions of very small problems that we all kind of go through in our lives, just like on a grander, that. more visual scale. 
Uh, and that's that, to me, that was always what was interesting about Spider-Man because it's routine villains. They're always just nobodies. They're like they're a bunch of dudes. One's a, a doctor. One, well, a couple of them are doctors. Some teachers of his own, you know, and others, you know, they're just street folks. You know, guys who fall on bad times or generally just well-meaning people who kind of end up on the wrong side of the tracks. And Spider-Man is just a well-meaning idiot kid who tries to solve all his problems by punching them. And uh, about 50% of the time it works, and 50% of the times he has to learn something more than punching to figure it all out. And this this film was a great example of how to nail the, the core Spider-Man premise. It was just a, a kid who had a lot of problems, mostly internalized, and trying to deal with the fact that he, basically he thinks he's the greatest shit that's ever happened to the world. And it's a, <laughs> and then it's a movie about teaching that kid who thinks he's the greatest shit that's ever happened to the world to get off his own dick and <laughs> really learn something from other people. The villain this time is just like, like he's one of the most I, like totally sympathetic villains of all time. He's just caught on the wrong yeah. side of the tracks. And it, it, Michael Keaton did him huge service because he was amazing to watch. And I, I, I just generally the smallness of the story was what I really liked. And it was only when it occasionally became too big and too distracted. Yeah. That's when I started to like distance myself from it, you know, when you you're piloting a, a, a invisible jet away from a city. That's too big for Spider-Man. Why the fuck's he anywhere near a, a jet that could kill people, well, you that, know? That's Sony. Yeah, exactly. And it's a big That's it's not cool, Marvel. It's a cool set piece and it had great I mean when it goes like disco colors in the sky, it's great to watch, you know, but it's Yeah. It's nothing to it's nothing to do with what I'm supposed to be there for, you know. It's, right. it's too big heisty movie kind of stuff um and uh like the mcu stuff the, i like the relationship between iron man and spider-man but a lot of the yeah. the avengers and while it was a good framework for his character a lot of the avengers mythos that plays into the story he shouldn't be near that it's too big it's, it's way too big this whole like an alien invasion nonsense what we needed more was him in school and and, and doing school things and actually and we do get a fair amount of that, and it is fun to watch when he's there, but there's just, I think a smarter decision towards the end of the movie would have been more school, more shunning the airplane, because it really it really does represent a total different film, and it kind of falters for me near the end how he ends up basically into a big set-piece battle instead of the battle being brought to him. Yeah. I really enjoyed the film. It's not a flawless movie, but... For a blockbuster, it has a lot going for it, and um, and for a Spider-Man film, it's as close to a Spider-Man story we've yet seen, and I'm happy to see it. It's just a good time. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a very fun movie. I really had a lot of fun watching the film. Mm. Um, I I felt throughout the entire movie though that it was very uneven as a picture. Yeah, and I could you could tell who was pulling the strings when. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was funny. But I like the 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 how how small. Like you you pointed it out, it's a very small uh, story with big things happening in in it. And I couldn't help but think of uh, Star Trek Beyond, where you know you have yeah. this very small story in a giant fucking movie, and I, I really appreciated you know how like you like you mentioned the, the the high school stuff, the things in school were the things that I thought hit home. Yeah. more than the action sequences. I uh, felt that there were things that were inconsistent that didn't work for me anyway. Hmm. Uh, the thugs walking in the hallways with guns. Uh, <laughs> like, 
in a school. I was like, okay, yeah, that was weird. They, kind of, they, the they quickly they... brushed that away, but that was very odd. <laughs> it was weird, and plus, there's no lighting. I mean, what time of day are they there? Is it is this at nighttime? I thought I saw students around. You know, they're, yeah, they're um, in the other classroom. Maybe it's just after school. Still, very weird. <laughs> it's, it's very odd. Um, I also um, listen. Tom Holland is probably the best. Uh, actor to portray Spider-Man so far. Mm. I never was a fan, even when I was watching the Tobey Maguire films. And I mean, we're not trying to compare or anything like that. Even when I was watching the Tobey Maguire films, uh, I never thought of Tobey Maguire as a good actor anyway. And I mean, you could even see it. I remember when I think it was Steven Soderbergh put out, um, this was um, Maguire's first film, I think post Spider-Man was The Good German with uh, Kate Blanchett and... um, George Clooney, and it's so weird because the opening of the scene is Tobey Maguire uh, having sex with with Kate Blanchett, and he's doing it doggy style, and I, and he's got this grunt on his face, and I was like, "Fuck you! There's no way <laughs> that's, yeah, not, that's not happening." I don't, you know, you were not believable really as Peter Parker anyway, and now you're doing this just to. It felt like you know Pierce Brosnan trying to go complete other way of James Bond when he put out the Matador, and you were like, "Really, you're gonna just go gruffy? I'm not this proper English guy." Or, well, mm. sorry, Pierce, I know you're Irish, but the I just figured I didn't I didn't particularly like I just, I like the Spider-Man sequences, you know, in Spider-Man Two, uh, I appreciated it a little bit more because. Kind of like in Homecoming, you know, you you have these these more tragic villains where you kind of understand where they're coming from. It goes a little bit beyond, you know, just them being uh, completely possessed or mad or something like that. Yeah. There mm-hmm. is some sort of ambition there. You know, when you look at Doc Ock, I mean, that was his entire life where you're like, he put all this time and effort into making something. He went a little mad. Yes, he lost his wife. You can feel that there's this, a very tragic figure underneath that. And so his 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 being a villain is more of a, of a byproduct of a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. Definitely. And I feel like the Michael Keaton vulture Adrian Toomes character is somewhat like that in Homecoming as well, where you're like, this is a dude that's trying to provide for his family. Now, granted, he didn't have to go all out and live the hardcore American dream with the windowed house and the cars. And... He could have taken it down yeah, a notch. Yeah. But I guess when I, I guess when you when you you get fucked that hard and you're on on you know you kind of end up begging them and then they they just let you fucking fuck off, which is probably something. In a less dramatic way, that happens to people all the time, especially yeah, with yeah, absolutely, and, and the rich people and so on that have these initiatives, and they don't actually think about the poor people who get affected by these things. The mm-hmm. uh, you could you can understand, and I could understand a real person even doing it, where they just go, "I'm going to take as much as I can get," because you know I was doing the right thing, yeah. and they fucked me over, and you know they totally deserve as much as they get. Do, yeah, I like agree, though. It totally, it is like. It is like the most like. How do you not find this criminal who was you know a, a construction There's worker that. or something? You know, like you know, in like two. You know, he went from eight years to like one of the richest men in, in, in his suburb. You know, like yeah, yeah. You're something's going arms, on. Like you know, no, no real trace of what job he does. Like mm, the IRS is going to find you, sir. <laughs> exactly. What's going to happen with that audit? Exactly. But, um, uh, one thing that I really did like uh, was um, the earlier action sequences. I thought I thought there were a couple like the Ferris Bueller reference was a little on the nose a me. little you know a lot of people <laughs> literally saying has it that playing it, at the same time <laughs> well there's that you know but 
I, like the whole John Hughes aspect that people keep mentioning mm. is there in spirit, but is so not there in, in terms of how the film is made. And so just because it's a high school film doesn't necessarily mean that we have to constantly be quoting John Hughes. He is as our the proto source. high school guy. We're, we're still yeah. trying to get a bigger name in high school movies. I think that's why he's the go-to, but there are yeah, more, but I mean, I mean, it's way closer to something like, um, I guess, you know, like Fault in Our Stars kind of territory. There you or, go. That makes you know, a lot more sense little, to me. Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl kind of general, like this high, high school experience, far more rooted in today, far less about the, the privileged elite having problems, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, and, and that, and, and also, I mean, just recently, uh, the, the Edge of Seventeen. I mean, we have right. uh, those anxieties that are there, you know, like the, mm-hmm. what we're going to be talking about in terms of Baby Driver a little bit later when we talk about uh, the millennial generation and even Generation Z. Uh, I mean, this is this is very much in line with how they work, you know. And yeah, I, I thought that Peter was a very uh, charming character. I thought he was just whiny enough to be in in the position that he was where he yeah. was like i just want so much just, just let me prove myself just on the edge it, of unlikable it's great <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the fact that this one wasn't about the fucking girl it wasn't about a damsel in distress yeah it wasn't about you know the both iterations that we'd seen so far of spider-man always involved you know you have mj in the first films and then you'll have uh, uh gwen stacy in the other ones where you're like peter was never really about that he happened to get into a relationship with mary jane just out of the blue it just mm. happened he didn't really work for it he was yeah. she came on to him most of the time right yeah, he wasn't necessarily a stalker or anything like that like he is in the previous films and <laughs> i i thought that at least this time it felt uh, contrary to logan i felt that this was really a story about spider-man it was really a story about peter parker and how he's learning to deal with who he is he's you know yeah. looking for an identity and I don't think that the other films were as good at portraying that. He did no. have a little bit of trouble, but at the same time, we never saw him in crisis. His crisis was like, should I be Spider-Man? Because I'm going to be hurting the people I love. You know, I'll be putting yeah. them in danger. We didn't get any of that at all in this one. And I remember when I we were talking during even our Captain America Civil War episode that I was starting to get superhero fatigue. And yeah. I read online, I remember, I think it was Matt Zoller Seitz, a film critic, who said that this year's superhero films have uh, turned a new page, a new leaf, and we're on to something very different now. And Mm -hmm. I have to be honest, I agree. I agree yeah. that Logan was a an interesting step in a direction that could be inter- that could be cool, you know, but all because yeah. of Deadpool. However, Wonder Woman and Spider Man are setting the bar in a very different place, and I'm eager to see what the hell comes after. I would, I would, I would, I would loop Guardians Volume Two in there. As oh, well. sorry, Guardians also. Uh, that's that's the other one I was looking for. Yeah, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy also. I loved Guardians of the Galaxy. I loved Wonder Woman, and I really, really enjoyed Spider Man Homecoming. Logan, not as much. We talked about it, but I'll leave it at True. that. But from what I've seen so far, this seems to be on a path that I kind of want to follow. This year was, uh, I mean, has been stellar. Stellar mm-hmm. so far. I mean, that, even the when you look at the, the one you didn't like the most, and it's Logan, you, and you go like, eh. But that, Logan's still a really good film, though. It's, it's still just, a very good movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. No. It's just not It's not one of my favorites. It's it's just a pretty good movie. It doesn't really matter what else comes out. I want Justice League and Thor, Ragnarok. They don't have to be good anymore. Because we've, we've been spoiled in regards to this. 
and and so now we can take the we can take the year off, let what happens happen, and uh, be ultimately disappointed when we fall back into this with I don't know. I think what was it? David Shabbat said Ant Man and the Wasp. That sounds like a good starting point. <laughs> back to Spider Man Homecoming. Uh, do I recommend it? Yes, one hundred percent. I think uh, it's a. Uh, a wonderful film. I think kids are going to love this. This one, they're going to yeah. gobble this one up. I can't wait to see if it ages properly. The CGI in it looks really awesome. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff in there that I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't bother me looking forward. But yeah, I'm on the same on the same ship. Not the, not the ferry, just a general good good meeting ship that doesn't get torn apart. <laughs> the uh <laughs> I totally recommend Spider-Man Homecoming. It's it's just a it's just a damn good blockbuster and, and, and also a damn good Spider-Man film. And those then what more could you really want? Yeah. If you, exactly, if you yeah. want more you're bound to get disappointed, which would explain a lot about current reactions. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so that's it for us on uh Spider-Man Homecoming. So stay tuned, we're gonna play the trailer for Baby Driver and we'll be back with our takes on the film. Stay tuned, gentlemen. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Hi, I'm David Hart, host of Pop Culture Case Study, a podcast that analyzes film from a psychological angle. On Thursdays, we take a look at an older movie, pick a theme, and then apply the research that has been in the psychological field to it. Then on Monday, we tie all of that to a new release. Lastly, there's a section of the show called Fangirl Fixation, dedicated to my wife Britt's ongoing film education. We discuss older films that she's recently seen, as well as the upcoming releases for that week. You can find Pop Culture Case Study on your podcast player of choice, and I will be there, as always, diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. There he is. Hey, hey baby. Why you listening to music all the time? He had an accident when he was a kid. He still got a hum in the drum. Plays music to drown it out. That's what makes him the best. Aren't you mysterious? Maybe. This business is a world consistent of three things. Money, sex, and action. One of these days... Gotta get blood on your hands. Wait, wait, I gotta start the song over. Hey, Sheila. Okay, go. Baby, you tell me who dies. No, I'm driving. It's all the music you need, folks. So, welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Baby Driver. A film that was directed by Edgar Wright and stars Ansel Elgort, Kevin Spacey, Lily James, uh, John Barenthal, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, and Isa Gonzalez. Lee, what did you think of Baby Driver? Best film ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're that kind of show now. We're reactionary. (laughs) Exactly. It's the best thing. Yeah, yeah. This is our Uche episode. (laughs) Anyone who says otherwise is wrong. Okay. <laughs> Edgar Wright has only made perfect films, and he continues this trend with the latest perfect film. <laughs> In all seriousness, uh. what the fuck did you think of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I I really liked um, Baby Driver. I would say, you know, give it time, could be a sort of a lovish scenario, but at, at present I'd say that it's one of those, man, I'm going to look back on 2017 and think, 
what a lovely little haze this 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 period of my life was when I seen Baby Driver was buzzed coming out of it and spent the next two weeks reading up as much crap as I wanted to and then and thinking about it over and over again and having images and the soundtrack play over in my head. It's that kind of film, you know, a film that kind of very much defines a little tiny period of a person's life. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. Uh, it's 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 by no means perfect. By the, by the factor of it being a genre film, it is also by no means everyone's film, you know. It's not for everybody. But it is very interesting and very good at what it tries to do, some of which... I know the both of us will try to unpack here. And I think probably for more technical and filmmaking reasons, uh, you know, critical reasons, than I think genuine blockbuster reasons, but the two aren't mutually exclusive. They they definitely reinforce each other in a lot of ways. And uh, constantly, when you go back to the film, yeah, I, f- I find new things to think about how it reinterprets the, the media over and over again. And that's the kind of that's the kind of shit I like. Even in your your straightforward action film, you can you can look at it from any other aspect and go, well, that's totally different, and it still holds up. And that might be a factor of its simplicity. It might be a factor of the filmmaking that went into it, the general nature of its screenwriting. But uh, there's a lot of ways that you kind of. It was basically having to pick which one I wanted to talk about today. That was my only my only burden, really. <laughs> you know, it could have been a pile of different topics we would have went down. But it was kind of just trying to narrow the field and think of something that I wanted that, that, that screamed out to me at the moment. And then absolutely when I get to see it a second time, a third time, and I get to watch it in my, you know, relaxing in, on, in my living room and it has having it on the TV and just getting to pick it apart a little more. Right. Edgar Wright's got to put in there. That's going to be a very exciting time to just chill out and enjoy a film that I already enjoy, but enjoy it more for the effort that I, you can't get on a first time experience. It, uh, it definitely has flaws. Uh, and I just, and I think that probably depends on which way you're reading it that day. <laughs> you know, there's always there's not every reading holds up 100% without a little question mark over some elements. But again, that could be a factor of its simplicity. Uh, to me, there's definitely some some readings I go like, mm, yeah, but you know, and that that but is always a little bit of a, of a detractor. But for the most part, the fact that you can get as much out of such a simple story. It's just a, a great sign of the amount of effort and dedication somebody went to telling a damn original and interesting concept in a fun and entertaining way. And at, right from the bat, I'll just get out that I absolutely recommend the film, even for if you don't think you'll like it, just find out by actually watching it. You don't have to, but you you might more than like it. Put it that way. <laughs> cool. I agree. Um, I think this is a, I'm going to call it a bookmark film. It's one of those films that you, you can revisit time and time again because it's going to be one of those nice. films that you can go back to uh, as a reference point for yeah. something. So, I mean, just like for me, like Drive and Take Shelter that came out in 2011, those are bookmark films for me because I'm like, okay, th- these these are exemplary of the time that they came out, things that were going on in culture at that moment in time, but also... Mm-hmm who um, the people that were actually making the films, this is where they were in their careers. And I think that this is going to be Edgar Wright's bookmark film. The one where he actually goes, there's going to be before Baby Driver and there's going to be after Baby Driver. Absolutely. And this one in Baby Driver, this is a cocksure Wright with a vengeance. (laughs) This is him saying, that. that, to me, the whole film plays out as, as a... 
I won't say it's a fuck you to Marvel. No. But it's like because there are elements had, of Marvel in there, definitely. So. Exactly. But it's it's him showing them like, had you given me, had you let me express myself, the vision that I had for Ant Man, you could have benefited from all this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. As well, you know. So it was him basically on overdrive the entire time. You know, like you know the the whole shifting in the car is him basically going fuck this i'm going this way yeah and you can you can feel it you can feel it on screen that you know baby's driving is the same as edgar's directing in this one where he's just full throttle going for it all out he has the entire soundtrack playing he knows exactly what he's doing all the moves are there everything is calculated and it, mm-hmm. it felt it felt a little bit weird to to be comparing it to uh like um uh, Guy Ritchie's snatch style where you know you can see that you know or even Sherlock Holmes is a better example where he can predict every single move of every character before he actually goes into a fight I feel yeah. like Edgar Wright is you can see every one of his moves there and he's calling attention to his direction throughout the entire film and I love that sometimes in the right context absolutely yeah and I mean as a film you know to me it was as immersive uh, for the viewer as it is an exercise in detachment where you're constantly be you're constantly aware that you're watching a movie most times films are not going to want to be like a theater experience like a play where you're like okay i'm watching people perform they want to stay close to reality you know i mean look Mm -hmm. at christopher nolan he's been doing his best to make the superhero genre something that's relatable and something that's real in baby driver this isn't real world and I love the fact that this is another contained story in the career of Edgar Wright, the same way as like you'll have Kevin Smith's clerks that are in, a, in, in a, you know, the, the, the whole Jersey Chronicles. And then you'll have Tarantino, who all of his characters inhabit this world. Now Wright is basically done with his Cornetto trilogy. Everybody that had to do with Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, The Shaun of the Dead, uh, World's End, Hot Fuzz and all that, that is done now he's going Mm -hmm. to be rebuilding the world according to how he sees what he's doing with baby driver i could be wrong but i think that this is a step in a direction i want to see now this is really really interesting i thought it was cool um i was sitting i went with my parents i went with my girlfriend as well who they enjoyed the film possibly not as much as i did i liked it flaws and all it's one of those things that i i feel like it's a, a a person that i've met before i know the ins and outs of that person but yeah even if I am acquainted with the person, he will always surprise me with something new. And I feel like this is one relationship that I, I'm happy to rekindle because Edgar Wright, I, I, I like Edgar Wright, you know, but I mean, I, mm. I don't revisit his films as often as I should. And, but at the same time, even when I do revisit the films, I find myself getting bored sometimes because I can see right. them coming yeah. along. I'm like, okay, I, I, this is, I can see the punchline. I know where the joke is. They're not films that I can rewatch the punchline that's that's a clear note because that, that formula i think you're going to see how it it works best in scenarios like baby driver right because it's not a comedy something right. that is is rewatchable and meant for rewatch doesn't really work when you have to listen to jokes again because you're only going to laugh the once no exactly this this is the st- that step into taking your work a little more seriously not that you can't write a serious you can't write comedy no, exactly. seriously no but exactly it absolutely, I think a clear distinction for me immediately was how this just worked better with his style because I could imagine yeah. myself watching it again for enjoyment and spectacle more than having to laugh at it, which then becomes something of a pressure on the rewatch because you feel like you have to keep laughing and you're not going yeah. to because your brain knows the joke and your brain doesn't laugh at things constantly unless you are the easiest person to market movies to in the world, in which case, lucky you. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I mean, to me, it's the the uh, like Guillermo del Toro came on on Twitter and he basically went on a 13 tweet uh, praise yes. of Baby Driver, and it was beautiful to see that mm-hmm. much appreciation from a fellow filmmaker who's like, "This is great. This is a fabulous testament to filmmaking." And I think that that's the big difference between the films that um, uh, Edgar Wright was making before, as opposed to the one that he did made with Baby Driver. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that I'm. I'm uh, I'd have to go back and watch Scott Pilgrim. There, it is definitely a cult favorite. It's not one that I uh, enjoyed as much on an initial viewing. I've seen it twice. Uh, the second time I watched it, I was like, "Oh, this is kind of fun." I kind of get where it's coming from. I, I will say of Scott Pilgrim, it is the zeitgeist of a very particular generation. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's, it's one I'm not so part of, hit and miss. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, but to me, that's still my favorite because it speaks so much about a lot of who I am uh, mm-hmm. and a lot about the people I know and our friendships and the, the things we grew up on. It nails it in such a way that you, you're never going to see again, basically, for my generation. Right. Okay. Uh, and on top of that, it is funny, but you'll note that when you watch it again, very much like Baby Driver, it is a genuinely straightforward drama that just happens yeah. to be funny more than a straight-up comedy that has dramatic elements worked in. Yeah, but whereas for me, the way that I was I was heading toward the fact that I brought up Guillermo del Toro is yeah. the fact that Baby Driver, to me, is, is, if I can use this as a loose comparison, Edgar Wright's Pan's Labyrinth. You know, the... If you look at it, you look at Del Toro's career, when you see everything that he likes, Del Toro as an mm-hmm. individual, as a director, like everything that has to do with fairy tales, the culmination of everything that man knows and loves is poured into Pan's Labyrinth. And it is a wonderful testament to who he is as a creative uh, genius, in my opinion, and yeah. who he is. And he's really telling you, this is who I am. And yeah. I feel like Baby Driver is Edgar Wright's version of that Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, this is exactly. who I am. This is what I'm capable of. And this is him basically pouring out into the world, embrace what I embrace. You know, this is what I like. And I feel that the fact that Del Toro came out on that 13 tweet praise was basically saying, I finally have someone who understands me. And it was really cool to see that, you know, these two wonderful creators come together. You know, it's like, I like your movie. I like your movie too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so cool. We both like each other's movies. And it was a really <laughs> fun experience to see that, you know, definitely. live. You know, we're not privy to those types of things normally. Definitely. And definitely. so I, I have a feeling like I, I can't see Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz or At World's End in the Criterion Collection. But Baby Driver, no. I'm pretty sure we'll get a really interesting bunch of documentaries that are going to come with that. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. That Baby Driver gets a Criterion release because this is a fantastic film. This is a wonderful film that you can pick apart. You can go back. There are levels and nuances throughout the entire picture that if you go back on repeated viewings, you're only going to get more from it, regardless of it if it has flaws. The flaws only make it beautiful, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the levels at which you can really uh, play to it, I mean, there, there's the fairy tale aspect that we were talking about a little bit earlier. You know, um, To me, this would be post-fairy tale. You know, what happens after the happily ever after ending that I talked about uh, with Drive as well. You know, uh, it would be a coming-of-age story in reverse. You know, you'll have the prince, basically, who's 
very aware of what he's doing. He just hasn't found his princess yet. He doesn't necessarily have to fight any demons or anything like that. But at the same yeah. time, he wants to reclaim some sort of innocence, which mm-hmm. means he's going to be going from a very much experienced life into a life of innocence, which we'll see at the end of the film. I mean, what color is he wearing? What color does Edgar Wright use when he's walking out of the jail? I mean, you'll have him basically in white. He goes yeah. to jail to find his innocence, which is absolutely amazing. That reversal, that subversion is cool. And, you know... If it's in black and white, that means that's his entire canvas. He gets to paint the colors he wants to paint on it now, mm-hmm. right? And so I thought that was brilliant. It was also a superhero film as well, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, using the music as a superpower, the earbuds and sunglasses as armor, in a sense. Obviously, the car is is another like uh, uh, another power of his. You yeah, know? his powers, his alter ego, and that he isn't yeah. actually called Baby. He's I can't remember his actual name. Miles. <laughs> Miles, yes. Oh, uh, that's that's funny. It's funny, yeah. Miles to go. He still has miles to go. It reminds me of um, Tales from Sonic the Hedgehog, who's called Miles Prower. <laughs> oh, wow. I have no idea. And you Maybe know what? Because, is... because of Wright's exposure to video games with Scott Pilgrim, Possible, this just kind of makes me yeah. think it's probably a, a knowing nod to, to Tales. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, look at look at the nods to the to the stoic driver genre. I mean, a car chase. You'll have, like, you know, Getaway. You'll have Gone in 60 Seconds, Vanishing Point, even Refn's Drive is i mentioned earlier yeah like i like a few words and it's kind of funny to to for him to be to be living with a mute he he doesn't talk much he has to use his hands to communicate and so it's really really impressive it's also a musical in disguise which i thought was brilliant Absolutely. you know I, in my mini review that i was talking about uh I, I mentioned like you know a lot of the shots are designed around how uh vinyls are actually operating how they turn on a turntable yes, yes. and it's brilliant and even the second scene in the film, you know, I noticed that the lyrics were painted on the posts and he was actually going through this entire chor- uh, you know, choreography. And I was like, Jesus Christ, if only La La Land had this much charm, it would have been <laughs> a better movie. And I-, I thought that this was a very charming way of-, of setting up a musical and not necessarily lifting, borrowing or anything like that. It was just flat out, let's try to reinterpret the genre, you know, and yeah, make it absolutely. that way. Yeah, without drawing it, too much attention to itself. That's the important thing. It didn't exactly. market itself as a musical. It had has the makings of a classic musical for a 21st century audience, which is fantastic. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's a clear divide as to what reality consists of uh, when the characters start singing on screen whenever you're watching the musical. But I mean, Baby actually brings you into that world. He's lip syncing. Mm-hmm. So he is clearly singing on screen. The only thing is, is that we're privy to the band he's actually listening to. So that's another yeah, way of getting yeah. the audience in. Because Christ, if that's not relatable... I mean, it's so funny because I remember um, there was one of my friends, and I'm sorry, Louise, I'm naming you. (laughs) (laughs) She was talking to me the other day, and uh, she was um, she was at a red light. Her window was down, and she was she's my age, and so she was listening to System of a Down. That's one of the bands that I grew up with. Right. Yeah. And she was listening to the Chop Suey, and here she was just just blaring the music and singing (laughs) along. Without realizing that her windows were down and she's at a red light and there's this dude in the other car next to her just kind of staring at her out the window until she realizes, fuck, my window's down and this dude can hear me just yelling. And so I I just laughed. And so whenever I see that, that, that when I saw that scene in Baby Driver, I was like, Haha, he's doing a Louise. And so <laughs> at the same time, I mean, it is a riff on the musical. Right. Yeah, well, I, and and also, actually... I mean, at the same time, it's also like something of like the the quintessential end game for the MTV generation 
right, music yeah, video. You know, spot. if yeah, you want to take that to its logical conclusion as a feature, you kind of see the the little components of each five minute song being an individual scene or segment in their own, and you yeah, put yeah, those absolutely. together, it makes a musical of the MTV mindset and generation, which Perfect. would be far closer to rights, you know, yes. period of time, but absolutely. Exactly. Music videos. It's exactly yeah. what it is. It's a series of music videos throughout the entire film, mm-hmm. which, which is why sometimes it can feel a little bit uh, uneven because the second act, it does get bogged down a little bit. It gets yeah. a little slow in the second act because now we have to, you know, there's a bit of exposition we have to get through and it's not Definitely. just car chases and, and, and fun times <laughs> with music. Can't tell a story of all car chases and expect people to pay attention for a full hour and a half. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just tires <laughs> screeching. And I mean, just coming back, like I was talking about in terms of the fairy tale, look at the fairy tales that we grew up with with, with Disney. They're all they're all musicals. You know, Cinderella, yes, there's absolutely. singing involved. Snow White, there's singing. Even The Little Mermaid recently, Aladdin, everything that has to do with that. Maybe just brought it <laughs> back idea, again with Your idea with of Rapunzel. recent Disney is adorable. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Rapunzel. Rapunzel as well. You, go, you know, yeah. Tangled. Tangled. You know, uh-huh. they'll have that. Um, what was the other one? Was there any singing that in one, Zootopia? That one from yesteryear, The Lion King. <laughs> Oh, shut the fuck up. Come on, man. I mean, and even like we were talking about in terms of fairy tales, everything is there for the hero's journey. Like if yeah, you're reverse as well, you'll have the guardian angel and, and, and the black man that he lives with, uh, uh, that he's taking care of in the in uh, in the apartment. Even Doc happens to be uh, the mentor as well. We can see him as a villain. I don't necessarily see him as a villain. I see him as a guy that just... Nec- yeah, he's a, he's a villain with a redemption, uh, you know, a redemption arc. So, I mean, he's just an anti-hero. Yeah, in a way. Of, yeah. yeah, I think that and he, he fathers, he shepherds over this whole organization right yeah exactly and i mean i'm gonna get into a little bit of what i wanted to take away from it and i'm gonna be harping again on on trauma and guilt because that's what my life is filled with (laughs) no No. i'm doing okay people but that's it again i want to throw 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 myself a curveball and stay away from the fairy tale genre so basically what i wanted to get into is how uh, to me baby driver is a film uh that's somewhat about trauma and guilt as terrible as that sounds i believe that under all that is a message of hope for a better future uh, sure. but to access that future you know you have to shed that guilt you have to shed that that trauma that isn't yours now, I came to that idea because, to me, uh, Baby is clearly a millennial and perhaps even closer to the uh, Generation Z. You know, you have the earbuds, the clothes, the way he walks, how he deals with things on his own terms when he can. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the what the millennial generation uh, has had to put up with, it's pretty fascinating. They've had to deal with a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily theirs to deal with, in my opinion. Yeah. And if you look at it, they were really gifted a legacy of shit post 9-11. You know, and they've had to creep out of their parents' trauma and come back to the world as this newborn, but on their own terms. And so there's a clear before and after 9-11, the same thing where we're talking about the clear before and after Edgar Wright uh, in his films, where there was an innocence lost after 9-11, but not the one that the millennials have. I mean, their parents suffered that loss of innocence and have been affected since that point in time. And that loss of innocence to me is, is a symbolic death of youth you know coming crashing down into this world of experience uh one that most parents try to hide to from their children and to me that's where we find baby uh baby has lived a traumatic event you know witnessing the death of his parents in a violent car crash and he's been physically affected by it in the form of tinnitus you know that ringing in the ears that the audience hears throughout the entire film and i mean 
in a post 9-11 world, there have been many films where you have that that um, male, you know, the, you have these guys that not necessarily, they don't have defects, they'll have impairments. You know, if you look at the films of Christopher Nolan, uh, just look at uh, Dominic Cobb, uh, who who basically has uh, had had a traumatic experience and he has to live through something uh, different in, in Inception, right? He buries it right. deep, 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 you know, 13 levels, I think they have to go to to find what his, his raw unconscious is and it's actually the death of his wife. And if you look at also uh, Batman, bringing it back to the real world as well you'll have these traumatic events and look at all the superhero movies that we have there is something traumatic that happens to them that leads to their transformation and i think baby is actually going through that you know the birth of him as the baby that we know is actually going through that traumatic event now to me that car crash is symbolically representative of the attack that happened on 9-11 and I'm not trying to diminish the impact, but rather try to see it through a millennial's perspective. Yeah, I yeah. teach I teach this generation of kids, maybe a little bit younger, you know, Generation Z. I teach these guys. And Baby Driver gave me an appreciation for how their thought process is. It actually helped me as a teacher understand a little bit more of what they are going through, how they yeah, see the right. world. Mm-hmm. And they were too young to process the information of 9-11, the fact that the world had changed, especially for the U.S. Now... If they're trying to make sense of what happened at such a young age, isn't that perhaps just a little too much to ask, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And as they get older and their pop culture is more and more infused with elements of that traumatic event, wouldn't it be understandable that at one point they try to block it out, you know, avoid the white noise that is constantly constantly trying to make them feel something that isn't... Isn't theirs to feel? I, I say that either isn't something they want to deal with at that moment in time, or more importantly, mm-hmm. maybe something that isn't theirs to deal with in the first place. Yeah, right. You know? Mm-hmm. So that white noise that I mentioned to me is that tinnitus that Baby suffers from. You know, and the soundtracks he plays as a means to escape that white noise. When he meets Deborah, she becomes that hope I was mentioning earlier, a means for him to wipe the slate clean and start over, living according to his rules and not be governed by a trauma from the past. And I think that that is kind of a, a fun way to see Baby Driver in a, in a very weird way, uh, obviously, because... It is kind of our responsibility to help our kids negotiate whatever they have to go through in life. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that we can't necessarily constantly be trying to heap how we felt about situations onto them. And I think that Baby, at the beginning of the film, him having that much experience already is him having to deal with so much shit that had happened before that he never really had a youth. He never really had the chance to be a child. And so it's ironic that his name is Baby in this case, right? He has to go from being a baby to Miles, but at the same time, there's a reversal in that case because at the end of the film, he's washed clean of whatever he had done. He wasn't supposed to see the world of crime he was in. Yes, he owed a debt to Doc, but that's not his to pay. He shouldn't have had to pay for that. Pay for what adult did or what happened to this adult you know and so we could speculate that the reason baby got so good at driving is because he never wanted to die in a car crash like his parents did right i remember my parents telling me that they tried to avoid repeating the same mistakes their parents made when they were raising me and i'd be lying if i said that i'm not doing the same thing with my kids of right? course, it's that I have to constant, keep protecting them. Yeah, it's, yeah it's you know? exactly. You know, there's always something that slips in the net, but you do have to keep trying to learn from what you know. Exactly. And I mean, even if I've lived through 9-11, you know, my kids are only going to hear about it in a history book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter was born in 2005 and my second daughter was born in 2007. This is not something they've lived through. It's obviously yeah. something that I can't take 
uh, onto myself because I wasn't in New York when this happened. I wasn't in New York, but it, it is it is a very clear defining moment in my mm-hmm. life where I can talk about it. But I remember mentioning it to the kids I'm teaching, and they were like, "We were two. We have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about." And yeah. so I feel like a little bit of the culture, you know, it's kind of fun that I like it when British guys are making American films because I saw the same thing with Hell or High Water, you know, and Mackenzie's directing where you're like, wow, he seems to know a lot more about what the U.S. is going through than a lot of U.S. filmmakers are. And the same thing for Edgar Wright. He made the film in Atlanta. And so you're like, he can see, he has this outside perspective on how things are are going. And maybe I could be reaching with my interpretation of the film. And this is only one aspect that I decided to pick apart because it's one that I didn't see anybody talking about. And this is Mm -hmm. the way I see it. But, you know, I I feel like that's how I see one aspect of it, you know, and it's taking the joy out of Baby Driver, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly what I was saying. The the film is is that general. It speaks to a lot of the time it was made in, just like you were saying, it's a bookmark film. This makes a lot of sense as 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 the path to go down when you're looking at it. Just the immediate what what exactly is happening right now at the moment with uh, 2017 being the year of inherited problems, <laughs> as far yeah, as especially it, for the a U.S. Way to put it, it is an yeah, inherited problem. I think that the film is open enough that once we get five, ten years later down the line, it's going to be speaking about a number of other things that you hadn't really, oh, yeah, yeah. you won't have seen when you were there at the moment. But I think that and this is something that I like. Um, I was watching, uh, they're soon closing down, which is a real shame because I only found out about them, is this uh, PBS Idea Channel. They they made a, a video recently about millennials, and uh, it, it was a que- the question that they posed to, con- to contemplate over was, how are millennials not to blame for everything, as in to sort of subvert yeah. the question that keeps appearing on every news source. Uh, what the what the episode goes into talking about is appropriated memories, there you which go. is All exactly right. what you're talking about. The uh, this idea that to be fair, I want to I want to point out that my idea. I guess, please. <laughs> I was thank just you. going to say, I had this idea before I, and then you said to me, "Hey, you should check exactly. this out." But I had already made up <laughs> yeah, my mind. No, absolutely. So. It's just like it was actually just the same. <laughs> The day before you came to me with what you were planning to talk about was the day after I had seen the video when I was like, wow, that is a great coincidence that that's on my mind right now. But yeah, no, what you're saying, uh, but it's clearly on everyone's mind because there's a lot of shit going around in 2017 that uh, older generations are really very much forcing on the younger generations who have no idea what it's about. Even currently in the UK, yeah. the whole the idea of Brexit, uh, which we're going through at the moment, is it was very much pushed on us by a, a larger, older voting demographic who have chosen to uh, leave the the European Union because of reasons that are very particular to the older generation. Just in de- right. de- I, I imagine in relation to how they feel about Europe as a general growing disdain. Uh, there's a lot of particular things to that generation, to the older generations, that they just have never truly trusted this thing. But they right. seem to also have forgotten that it was a, a British decision to A, start it off, and B, define it the way it's been defined. So uh, there's right. a lot of... There's a lot of misinterpretation of what's going on exactly at the moment, but the fact is that by leaving this, most people will generally agree that it's going to be a hard time for the seceding uh, generation rather than the right. the older generation who will die <laughs> just as the going is just yeah. as, just as the going gets bad. Uh, whereas the younger generation will have to try and pick up the pieces and figure out what exactly post Brexit UK looks like because nobody knows. Uh, and that's Absolutely. it's it's kind of the, the way that's happening with the 
Trump America at the same time. It's all speaking to a very yeah, similar, a weird, similar thing going on, and that the gen and, and a lot of people are now questioning the generational system as to as to try to get some answers as to why these people are, have ended up thinking the way they think of, and and why there's now a far right. further right and conservative feel to understanding society than there probably has been for a very long time. Um, right. And I, a lot of that, I think, is what you're picking up on. From from Baby Driver, this 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 story of a of a young kid with uh, the world crashing down around him, just trying to get by right. and try to piece himself together before he even thinks about doing the right thing. He's only trying to do the right things in the bits and pieces he can control. That he gives the purse back, you know, and then he he, yeah. he, uh, he he tells the woman to get clear of the danger. These are these are the moments right. that are defined within that character's ability to define them. But everything else is totally outside his control, other than trying to keep on going. And this yep. feels exactly like it would to the coming generations who are now looking at this burgeoning pressure to fix the world. And yeah. who put that upon them? They haven't even figured out what's wrong with them because they're the problem, apparently, at the moment. The millennials, they are to blame for everything. Yeah. So apparently they have to get over themselves first before they even go into that. And that's what I think would be interesting to see with right in the future. If this is the pre-Brexit, pre-Trump film that's leading up to where that that election takes place or where the the referendum that happened in the uk you know but what we see right. just after it is the the sort of reclamation in baby driver of the millennial who has started to gather a little bit of themselves but we don't see much of the recourse we don't see much of the decisions right. and i think what would be a, a great companion to this film in in the future is if we do see not with baby driver i would say that i, I never want to see a sequel to baby driver no fuck no they're talking about it and that's no, a terrible, terrible idea. idea uh but what i mean is i want right to continue on that train of thought i want him to uh, i think oh, yeah. that examining what a, a generation if such a thing exists you know socially as a construct it definitely might exist but if it does exist, I would like to see somebody take that fully and explore possible scenarios in which they reclaim and what will challenge them in the future. And I think that I, mm-hmm. Baby Driver, the way you read it, is a great way to read it because it, it is definitely there to me. I see it, it, it makes sense, the, the progress of the story, how that works out. Uh, and that's why I would just love to, to, to find a continuation on that. And even if it falls a little into the you know, soothsaying category of filmmaking where Edgar Wright's trying to predict rather than commentate, which he's kind of doing at yeah, the moment. Yeah, that'd be great too. I, I would I would appreciate the risk, you know, because this is a risk in itself in that it is a, a, a very metaphorical film. And, and a lot of the, oh, lot of yeah, the, lot of the readings agree, of it yeah. is just on how basically simple the, the way it's been told allows you to read it. But if you are a straightforward blockbuster watcher you, you might you, you might just love action and you can get away with it but you'll also be somewhat disappointed i imagine in little bits and pieces like the romance which are very somewhat outdated and don't work past a metaphorical level uh because they're maybe too simple even though that works for readings of the film it might not work for the film film you know the in narrative narrative oh yeah so what i would love to see is another metaphorical film someday in the future that right takes again yeah, yeah. very much similar concepts maybe you know obviously different focus maybe not action film for example maybe not a heist film hopefully god, god no and to see what he can really make of that how that comment i mean heist in itself is a great idea when you're thinking about your reading of it 
it's all a heist. <laughs> you know, the, yes. the, the robbing of, of a generational's concept of what they are. I mean, that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> there you go. And it was funny because, I mean, it, uh, I caught myself thinking of Midnight in Paris right. uh, while I was watching it as well. You know, the idea of, of being out of out of your... Well, the idea that you believe that you're out of context. Right. You know, that you believe in a different... That you are, are meant to be in a different generation. You know, obviously Woody Allen's playing on something like most people are like, oh, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm part of my generation. I would have been more in the 70s. And, uh, but that's always been a romantic notion. And look at the romantic... Uh, aspect of the music that's been chosen as well yeah. you know you're bringing forward a lot of these snippets of a past time where you could claim that there is a little bit more innocence but the way that baby actually listens to the tracks also is in a very innocent manner because it reminds him of his mother right yeah. there's those tapes mm-hmm. that he makes and he makes those beats with old beats but he's remixing them with according to how he understands music as yeah, well absolutely. right and so I thought that was kind of a, a fun way of looking at it. You know, the idea that he's taking the past and making of it what he will. Mm-hmm. And so he's not necessarily carrying all the implications of that past. Yeah, that's the that's the him. appropriation of the memories then, isn't it? So that's, that's exactly go. it. He's, he's taking on what is from generations before and trying to make sense of it in his own context. That's exactly a perfect reading of what you're talking about. There you go. And so uh, uh, one last thing to close out what I was talking about. Obviously, this is a small take. And I mean, I could have worked on it a lot more. Yeah. But I mean, it's food for thought. Absolutely. Uh, I know that there are plenty of holes and I might be reaching in certain places. But I mean, I would we wouldn't be Atlantic Screen Connection if we weren't doing that. <laughs> and, but uh, one thing that came to mind as well as the... Uh, the first time I saw Baby, I noticed this jacket, and I was like, oh, fuck, that's amazing. This is a reference to Han Solo. Yeah. It can't not be. Absolutely. And so I thought it would be interesting for like Han Solo becoming a beacon for the millennial generation or Generation Z. You know, the millennial falcon, for example. <laughs> there you go. And that, the thing is that the screen fucking junkies have a show called The Millennial Falcon now. Ah, damn it. And that's it. I mean, look at look at Solo. He fell in love. He did it on his own terms. He became a leader because he broke protocol. He didn't follow rules. And you're like, well, there you go. That's exactly what and he's he doing. Died he's basically, as a I'm poor father. <laughs> Sometimes you want to fix the world. You have to be a bad dad. <laughs> but I, I thought it was cool that that would have been the kind of um, if if I mean, Wright is clearly playing to his Star Wars sensibilities. Absolutely. I'm sure he's a Star Wars fan. But that's it. I, I think that having Solo there you know and be like look we we have a guy that that could clearly be identified as a han solo a han solo type a guy that basically knows how to navigate you know with a a subaru impreza (laughs) the same way that solo could be able to navigate an asteroid field i'll just say that (laughs) remember millennials always remember that it's the um it was the older generations, the money grubbers at Disney that killed your Han Solo. <laughs> now you must, <laughs> now you must make him your martyr. <laughs> there you go. But anyway, so that that was my take on Baby Driver. Obviously, there's so much more uh, to it than that. I mean, if I if I, uh, but I'll let you get your take on it, and then we'll after that we'll go into general impressions. Whether we were well, we did recommend it, but I mean performances. Yeah, absolutely, that. all that. Kind so of stuff. take it away, sir. How did how did you? What did you come up with? I mean, you were talking to me, and a lot of what you were talking about is the music. You talked to me a lot about the soundtrack, and you were reading about the soundtrack, 
uh, not about the soundtrack, but about music in general uh, and films and how they play into a, a very well-crafted soundtrack. So take it away. Absolutely. So I, want to hear I mean, it's it's something that um, is going to seem half-baked, I imagine. At least in my head, it seems half-baked because I was now I was looking at this like wave of information on this book. I'm going to I'm going to talk about a little and taking in as much as I possibly could. I only found out about it maybe two, three days before we were due to record the episode. So I basically I tried to piece together what I was trying to get across when I originally went looking for the book. And I found a lot, a lot of great things there that uh, helped support what I was getting at. But I, I know there's just so much more and I cannot do it justice. But I'm going to be pointing everyone in the direction of the book because uh, I know I'm going to be reading it some more. And, and I recommend you read it. But first, let us just talk generally. <laughs> so... Cool. The uh, the obvious buzzword that came to my mind when when thinking about Baby Driver was kinesis, uh, which is it's just this kine- okay. kinetic energy plays a huge role in what Wright tries to do in general with his films. Uh, he's become yeah, yeah. quite um, notable for his like smash cut or transitions. That's that's just one of the many elements that he implements in his filmmaking, but it's probably the one that's gathering the most traction in the mindset of people trying to piece together what exactly makes an Edgar Wright film, Edgar Wright's films. Uh, but that uh, that has a lot to do with kinetic energy. And uh, in Baby Driver, both in presentation and potential desired outcomes, I wanted to quickly posit some thoughts on kinetic energy and summarize why I think, from a filmmaking standpoint, this is just a fine-crafted action movie. And I think the, right. the words right there, action, uh, as, as the genre. Wright took the concept as literally as possible here, built a protagonist mm. to theme the concept around, and then worked from there. So I'm just going to look at a lot of examples for a moment about why kinetic energy is such a big part of this film. And if I can think of all the decisions made to introduce some kinetic energy into the film, we've got to start with the central premise. Just getaway driver. Cars, the primary function of cars is to take us from one place to another. It's just that simple. It's all about mm-hmm. motion from the very ground up. And then we think of baby's general characteristics. Excluding music, because I'll get to it in a bit, but he's soft-spoken, he's generally silent, and he wears sunglasses, and here we're seeing Wright setting himself a challenge. Create a character who speaks more through on-screen movement than actual dialogue. And that's not to say dialogue doesn't count as kinesis either, but the the actual idea that action plays more than words is very much a part of this. And that the character can't even work with eye movement to carry his thoughts across, uh, or glances or knowing looks, that's a very small part of the... You get a couple in the film every now and then, but for the most part, he's in sunglasses holding his own. Uh, and we could look at that again, obviously, as, as a part of his um, alter ego as well. But, you know, cause yep. the, the, the readings reinterpret themselves over and over again, but this is the kind of way I want to put it. And also looking at how Baby then gets himself across to other characters. He dances, he beats his thumbs off the surfaces to the music, he headbangs, he mimes piano... He knocks tables, uh, he parkours, he plays his own music, and he uses sign language to communicate with his adoptive father. Also, he reads lips. They never say that, but he definitely reads lips. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's decisions in the mise-en-scene, uh, which, for those not super up with their like film terminology, is just generally visual storytelling, mm-hmm. in essence. It's, it's, it is it's a vague notion, but... It, kind of a great undefined it's, it's block blocking and framing blocking and framing is the best way to get it across but essentially anything that plays into the story or the narrative for the most part via visual medium usually count as mise-en-scene but yeah it, 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 
people debate it all the yeah, time. Yeah, it's where you place where you where you place the characters on screen and yeah. how you decide to shoot that. That's going to convey something to the viewer. Absolutely, and also just even objects in rooms and and, and the, yep, the yep, setting yep. of a room in general or the angle you look at a room in general. You know, the piles and piles of ways to think about mise en scène. So yeah, and the decisions there. Think of how motion sneaks into every scene. The washing machines of the laundry store, which translates to that record imagery, uh, obviously is one of the more showier ones. But we can also think about how the traffic passes outside the diner window in the couple of times that we're there. And how the gates open for the prison. We're getting a movement there. Even just in Mm -hmm. small scenes where we already have motion with people walking, but they're very simple, broken down, and there's some kinetic energy on screen that we can read into on its own many times, but if we just look at the general emphasis that keeps going throughout the film, we know that motion is there consistently on some level. Plus, we have little actions that keep small scenes going. Baby's phone, which buzzes across the diner table. We've got the whiteboard for setting up plans, so we've got a constant movement with Kevin Spacey. Uh, even in the what is usually the most boring scene of any heist movie is the planning scene, so... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, He introduces a very clever motion tactic there. Flowing transitions between the testifiers keeps a standard court moving. That, again, drags a halt. The film's to a halt every single time, but we basically we fade in and out of different testimonies, which is great. Uh, And anywhere else the camera moves with the scene, unless it doesn't have to, the show drama unfold. Like the long hold of Bat's gun on Baby, or Buddy leaning in the window. These are obviously used for dramatic effect. They're still an action in place. You know, there's definitely a, a significance on, on the hold, though. Mm-hmm. And it's always after an action, you know. So the lean, then a pause. The point, then a pause. Yeah, even at the end of the film, when the, when, the, uh, when they arrest him, you know, even the distance between the characters, when Baby's in the middle of the street and he says, don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, the, cam- the camera actually stands still, but I mean, there was a chase before that. So yeah, you're absolutely on the Great. So so many decisions to keep motion on screen. And when it comes to off screen... Of course, we have his music. Now we're now we're here. Now we're now we're caught back up to what <laughs> that was foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> music itself is vibration in the air, so it is kinetic. And here I want to introduce my main source of reading. This is the point that I want to talk about the book, "The Musicality of Narrative Film," by Daniela Kulazik Wilson, uh, who is a, uh, a lecturer at the, the University of Cork. And the, this book, it's just been—I was so happy to find it. I just overwhelmed because I, I i was just looking for something i was really more looking for essays and then i found this proper book uh and when i read a sample of it on on google books i was just like yes this is definitely what i'm looking for and it and since nice. then it's it goes way beyond baby driver way way beyond but i, I want to take it to baby driver now for a moment and then maybe eventually i'll probably keep working this in at some point because i really am enjoying it that much so yeah, in her book, Kulisic Wilson explores the concept of the shared features between music and film, such as rhythm, spatial relationships, structural similarities, and composition. That, with the introduction of sound to cinema, she tries to understand the complementary nature music and film share by the reliance on the other's missing elements, at least in relation to narrative film. And I've got a quote. Music and film can be viewed as partners in a relationship that can be explored in both analogous as well as interactive terms. Essentially, the work spins out of how we often describe film in terms of having music-like qualities, how features sing on screen, how elements flow like a song, how events build to a crescendo. The underlying metaphor suggesting the two forms share traits and giving examples of how films explore those relations to present impactful and moving cinema. Right. Back to music in Baby Driver, 
While Wright does work this in on a diegetic level, in that the music does exist within the confines of the story, uh, which is what diegetic means, it's just, like, narrative. <laughs> yeah, within the, yes, within the main narrative. Yeah, it works in cooperation with the non-diegetic elements, i.e. the elements that exist outside the story, like Wright's camera work and visual storytelling. So <laughs> think of the emotional effects that are trying to be obtained by the inclusion of certain songs. The film opens with bell bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion, and we get some of the location fed to us visually in time with these punctured blasts. Meanwhile, there's this building staccato violin building in the background. The sense we're supposed to be left with here is tension at a reveal. The audience is made to feel that something is going to happen because the build in the music is going to lead to a crescendo or a dismount. What happens is a car pulls into frame, and we pull up to see our cast just as the music moves into its main first, this longer series of call-and-answer guitar play with the blasts are still there, right. but are met with a higher guitar and plucky violins to suggest the tension is easing or to create the sense of cool after a short burst of tension. There are other scenes as well, I'll keep them shorter. Think Hocus Pocus by Focus. <laughs> that was fun to say. And how it plays into... <laughs> And how it plays into, I believe, the, the parkour chase. There's this intense series of drum rolls, then this weird chanting. It's all very chaotic, and it builds in a falsetto until it capsizes in drums and guitar. This mad double-kick pedal working as well. It's supposed to be frantic, and it works in time with the steps of Baby as he runs away. So we both see his effort and feel the tension as the two work in sync. Other examples are Brighton Rock and its heavy chorus. The relaxed, dreamlike feel of B-A-B-Y by Carla Thomas. And even, I think, in a quieter scene, probably the one that Baby leaves his adoptive father at a care home, and it's not in the soundtrack, but the music is New Orleans Instrumental Number no. 1 by R.E.M. And it's got this serene string section and a simple keyboard melody. And if it didn't make you emotional, it still works in tandem with the images on screen and how it attempts to evoke the mood of goodbye, even as there's mounting chaos in the background. And we'll go for another quote. The effect of juxtaposing musical stasis with visual kinesis also resonates with Eisenstein's often expressed belief. Embodied in his idea of audio-visual counterpart, that the basic precondition for realizing a synthesis, which involves different artistic media, is for each component to express what the other cannot. One could argue that by combining musical stasis and visual kinesis, the described autonomous musical material, which is not necessarily experienced as tense, becomes such when fused with the picture, creating a charge between the static and the dynamic. It also means that the effective power of this scene does not depend on the synchronization of the movement of music and the movement generated by elements of the visual composition, as Eisenstein suggests in other segments of this analysis, but rather lies right. in the merging of their independent attributes. So we get the sense that the soundtrack fills in for what the images alone cannot represent. So, so you're talking about balance. Balance and complementary nature. So it's not always balanced because... Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, so that's why at, at one point the music will become background music as opposed to it won't be necessarily leading yeah. the scene. And in other sequences, and the narrative itself is going to become informed what actually the music is doing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah, makes sense. And what's great about that is, and while there is plenty of kinetic energy going on in the goodbye scene with the helicopters and searchlights moving throughout the shots, as well as the father's sign language, kinesis does not equate emotional payoff alone, and so the oral elements are all play a part. That's also not to dismiss the fact that sound is more than just the music, and the book goes through this with an understanding of something called mise en bain. Okay. This is a quote, The ethos of the musical approach to film is in a way also mirrored in the theoretical slash analytical concept of mise en bain, which was presented by Altman, Jones, and Tatro as the acoustical equivalent to mise en scène. Just this image Analysis benefited from introduction of the comparative and relational notion of mise-en-scene, or putting onto the stage, 
So understanding the soundtrack requires the concept of mise en bond or putting onto the soundtrack. So at one yeah. point, we can even see Wright potentially commenting on his awareness of this viewpoint through Baby's music making. Little more than a series of instruments, mixing, percussive sounds, and a recording of dialogue blend together this work to create Baby's original track, Was He Slow? Something that then actually takes shape beyond the soundtrack and enters the diegetic viewpoint of the story once Bats and Buddy get their hands on it. So using this... We can see that Wright is aware of the importance of this element in storytelling and even adapts it further into the story. But what does all the kinesis on and off screen ultimately try to tell us? Well, we know a number of reasons why he wanted to do this, but now we just need to try and understand what outcome he was hoping for. And I've got three roughly pieced together in my mind, but this is really more of an open question to uh, you, the audience, anybody. Because <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't have all the answers. <laughs> I didn't finish the book yet. <laughs> so first, we can see it as a commentary of the genre. Action movies should have action. How does one employ the strengths of the genre to aid in the storytelling? Ensuring action exists in all frames from start to finish. Epitomized by Baby's tinnitus. Even silence is not an option for the action movie. Something must always be in motion, even if it is as low as a hum. Here, Wright sets a standard of how all the aspects of filmmaking can be united together in various mixes and blends with the tropes of a genre to further the genre itself. Nice. Secondly, the blockbuster factor. Baby Driver is not especially complex as far as stories go. In fact, its leanings on a simple moral of be a good guy even when, the, even when doing bad and the world will be fair, compounded by a happy ending and a saturn classical romance makes for straightforward viewing. But what the use of popular music post-1950s and some dance and rock tells us is that this is beyond the standards for films of an actual movie score. This is no halfway house, this is a firm decision. The action blockbuster is for pop consumption, and thus should be backed by pop music rather than classical elements. The inclusion of instrumentals in genre blends like Beach Boys and Bell Bottoms does suggest that he is aware that pop music comes in various shapes and sizes, and that a good story contains more than a single element if it wants to be less genre theatre and more accessible, but his decision here to fill the soundtrack end-to-end -end with five-minute songs like a still-running iPod is an acceptance that this story is supposed to be simple and fun, rather than complex and difficult right. to comprehend. Lastly, emotional connection. The book, and I don't have the quote here, of the relevant French Impressionist, but it goes on to, it, okay. but it goes on to discuss the idea that there is nothing in correlation between the timing of cuts of footage and emotional payoff. That's something usually sound, but also movement, were required to elicit an emotional response from the audience. Through the inclusion of oral and visual kinesis on every frame, though, Wright is here trying to get his audience to emphasize with Baby and company. If we look at the basic narrative, there's no character who doesn't earn our sympathy on some level. Baby and Deborah, both stuck in the grasp of others, Buddy and Darling, lovers who are who we are left to assume escape the setup in much the same way Baby and Deborah intend to, though either by force or right. choice end up back in crime. Bats who may actually have mental problems, Doc who ultimately redeems himself as a father figure <laughs> yeah. and a romantic, yep. and Joseph, a deaf caretaker now in need of care. Characters who aren't always what they appear and connect with each other often, plus ultimately a story of redemption for Baby. Here Wright is trying to tie the bow around the package in order to keep us infested, both through the stimulus of physical energy and how that relates to ourselves. Uh, see the following quote. Rhythm is a truly ubiquitous phenomenon that permeates all manifestations of life in the universe. Biological rhythms govern all the processes in our body, from continuous pulse of the beating heart and the rhythm of breathing, to the body's responses to external cyclical rhythms of nature manifested in the succession of day and night 
lunar influences, the change of the seasons, and so on. We are drawn to the rhythm of the film as it's something we have in common with it. And so, I mean, we could go, we could go further, and I, like, you know, we're already bringing up a million and one different ways to read this film. You could even go the same oh, yeah. way with Kinesis and, and, and the way that the film is put together in the same sense as a music, music video, as we've already discussed, is put together. You could analyze that from a kinetic point of view and how that played such mm-hmm. a point in, in that music set the the standard for how those videos and and the tempo and the rhythm played into exactly how those videos ended up coming to be. But I would like to reread the book about six more times before I come up with any more stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you you clearly are onto something. I mean, uh, if if we just look at what you're talking about in terms of kinesis, mm. with regards to music videos, look at the. I won't say that I'm 100% sure on this, but look at the Jason Bourne trailer. Right, sure. When it came out, it was one of the first trailers that I noticed that they would actually use the music and the cocking of the guns at the same time to create a rhythm. Right, yes, cool. And so that's been a pattern that we've seen throughout many action film uh, trailers where you're going to have the musical score, even just look at Kong Skull Island, they actually use that same thing you know the the cocking of the gun in order to create more noise that's actually in sync with the beat and so you're constantly playing with the soundtrack in order to create um you're you're having it kind of bleed into the narrative yeah absolutely it synchronizes with the narrative on some level to reinforce a significant part of the of the of what it's trying to get across yeah and i mean it does definitely call attention to it because i mean most of the time when you're listening to to a score or a theme or something like that it's there to help what's on screen. Yeah. It's not supposed to distract you from it. And when I've noticed, I mean, when I'm watching trailers, that little part distracts me. I'm like, oh, they're actually using it as a beat. Ha ha ha. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm actually taken out of, 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 of uh, the film just a little bit. A lot of trailers have been using that, that, that kinesis in order to, you know, chide people into going to see the films to show that there's action. The music is actually taking part in the trailer as opposed to just being something that hovers there where you're like, oh, at least there's Absolutely. music. Think of like Suicide Squad, you know, where the, yeah, you know, that, the whole, yeah. the rise of the, the actual pre-courses causes the screen to cut the black and another shot to come up, you know, it sets a rhythm to be matched. Yeah, and that there you go. in turn gets across yeah, this so, idea yeah. that, you know, Suicide Squad's a film that is dramatic but fun, you know, and, uh, and yeah. intense. Rhythm is clearly the word that, that I was looking mm. for. I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. The rhythm of uh, the trailer itself is cause to get you to move as yeah. well. And basically it's moved to the theater. And so I think that they're doing a good job now by editing trailers to be a little bit more uh, rhythmic in order to get you to actually be pumped about it but you don't know yes. why and one of the main things that i noticed is when we're playing the trailers uh, throughout the episodes that, that's when i started picking up on it a little bit more i was like oh look at that they're actually using that i mean and i actually got yeah i was a little bit more involved in the trailer from an audio perspective because you can't see the images so i'm like it's actually still enticing so it, it was fun to notice that I was actually uh, maybe interested in seeing a film, even though I couldn't see what was actually being yeah, portrayed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's some of the great stuff we can we can look at how writers commenting on the use of rhythm in films, use of, of kinesis. Oh, yeah. It's just that there are so many ways to be creative about it. I think if you want a general takeaway when it comes to filmmaking, you can absolutely choose to read this as a... Um, you know, a fight back against the quick cut editing action scenes of, say, the last Bourne movie, you know, where we can't really keep track of what's going on. And, and, and it's far more about how we can also creatively move from one thing to another, keep track of the action, but also involve all the elements 
that film has to offer as right. a form rather than just some of it, you know? What good does a, a bunch of, like, an orchestra do for Born that a pop song wouldn't, you know? It's, depending on the mm-hmm. song, of course. I'm not just saying, you know, you could put ABBA over it and it's going to work, but... <laughs> It would be entertaining. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Definitely. Pop music is certainly... It has a bad reputation when it comes to film. because it, Specifically because it comes from the MTV generation. And how it was used to boost the profile of pop uh, comedies of the time. You know, the 80s are just full of dance right. sequences. And fun, poppy movies with not that many morals or interesting characters. But they could get away with it because they had a fun... They had the soundtrack of the summer in them, you know. And Baby Driver posits... That yes, it can have a soundtrack of the summer, but it also it can have a good film that uses the soundtrack in a diegetic way and and and, yeah. and, and actually and utilize what film has in its tool shed. You know, I have to be honest. I mean, I haven't seen a soundtrack used this well. This is to this year for me that I was like, holy shit, this is really great. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two used their soundtrack on a to narrative perfection. level, exactly the and, same kind of idea, maybe in a different direction, but same idea, definitely. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Baby Driver might actually be the millennial generation's pulp fiction that's mm. um and i i think that this film is uh, as as much as it's flawed the same way as pulp fiction can be even if like you're looking at non-linear narrative baby driver isn't necessarily taking uh cues from a non-linear narrative but uh, in terms of like what i was talking about like uh, a coming of age story in reverse Edgar Wright is really reshaping specific tropes Mm -hmm. and adapting them to a a generation of kids that need uh, a a new model in order to make films, use music in films, uh, and and just something to to look up to as a refresher, like a reset button, Mm -hmm. if you will. And yeah, that's what I, I remember walking out of the movie theater and saying, yeah, we're 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 twenty three years past Pulp Fiction. It was time for something like this to happen, right? And I'm very very happy to have been around to see it. Where we have this is our reset button, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, in terms of where we are, it's like I said, a bookmark film. Pulp Fiction is very much a bookmark film. Absolutely. Uh, Baby Driver is that that new one. That that's this going to be this generation's Pulp Fiction. And I hope this generation is going to love movies as much as I've loved movies. Uh, the kids that I talk to in school aren't necessarily that much into film. They're more into uh, TV series now because there's a, a little bit more to follow. Yeah. There's a little bit more development. Uh, and I can understand that it's easier to easily accessible. They don't have to leave home. They can binge watch it on Netflix and whatnot. Absolutely. And it's a lot cheaper mm-hmm. to get nine, $10 a month on Netflix than it is to go out and spend, you know, so a lot of cinema chains are going to have to get their act together if they want to have this surviving business. Yeah, absolutely. But if baby driver is one of those flags, a, a symbol of change, if you will, then perhaps the next generation of kids that are going to slowly be getting into films, you know, like I was 14 when Pulp Fiction came out. If someone is 14 years old right now or 15 years old and he sees Baby Driver, he might be one of those guys that decides to go to the movies a little bit more often if he gets to see movies like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. That's, and it's a great way to see it. Uh, hopefully, I mean, it pans out the same way that we imagine. Yeah this resurgence of blockbuster independent cinema like Baby Driver is, where it is it is a it is a big studio film made by an auteur, very much like Pulp Fiction was. Uh you know, there's there's some sort of shared, you know, idealism there. Hopefully right. that uh that crossing of paths does point in the direction of something you know, a lot more promising when it comes to the uh the, the bigger studios embracing, you know, the, the smaller or more considered artists. Especially mm-hmm. not just in name 
you know, actually giving them their say and not just like Josh tracking them. <laughs> yeah, and they, they've they've destroyed careers, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, but there are other people that have destroyed their own careers. I mean, oh, Troy oh, Duffy comes to mind with Boondock Saints, where you're like, dude bit off a little bit more than he could chew, even if he had a big fucking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he made a really good movie, but he should have shut the fuck up too. But anyway, I think Trank, you know, he, he made a couple of mistakes, but at the same time, Wright fought back in a good way. Mm-hmm. And I think it didn't necessarily bite him in the ass too hard because he had public sympathy with him after what happened with Marvel. And I'm pretty positive that Lord and Miller are going to have the same kind of uh, feedback when it comes to their next movie after being fired from the Han Solo Ooh, project. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully we'll so. We'll see. We, I don't know. I don't, I don't consider Wright to be a prima donna. I've heard Lord and Miller talk, and they are a little. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that pans out. Anyway, moving on, just quickly before we have to close this out. Uh, performances overall... Thoughts in a more general basis. You what said you... Han Solo earlier. Literally kept thinking it every time I saw his face from that angle when he was talking to Deborah. We kind of see him under yeah, there and we yeah. get his little chin and his kind of pointed nose that's kind of crooked to one side and his yeah. big puffy cheeks. Absolutely. And he's just like, you look like a young Harrison Ford. You look like a dead ringer Ford. You and go. you're kind of, are you a good actor? Question mark that I always have with Harrison Ford. <laughs> I got the same thing for him. Oh, no. My Harrison Ford depends, man. Yeah, absolutely. He's a movie star more than anything absolutely. else. But occasionally you'll be like, oh, I like that. Because, I mean, I, I, I'm one of the few people that actually uh, enjoys the remake of Sabrina. Right. And he plays Linus in, in that film. And he's fucking great. Mm. He's such a bastard, but he's a lovable <laughs> bastard. So, yeah, there's that. I mean, he's he's stellar in The Fugitive as well, you know. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I can't take anything away from that. But there are other movies that you're like, eh, okay, whatever. They could have put anybody else in there and it would have probably been better. Yeah, yeah. Definitely as a blockbuster movie action star, he's, you know, oh, yeah. nearly unparalleled. Uh, and there's there's traces of that in a young... There's, there's traces of that in a young Ansel Elgort, uh, which is always great to see because I... I, I I do really like Harrison Ford's kind of hands-off acting approach. Uh, yep. And there's very much uh, a, a similar trace here. That it wasn't, you don't look at it and go like, that's acting super class, but you do think, God, that guy could lead a film. Uh, and that's all that mattered. And uh, so I'm very happy with that. Otherwise, performance, I, I love John Hamm. Can't we just have all the John Hamm Isn't in the world? Isn't he fucking awesome in the movie? He's fucking he the, is fucking great. Uh, he was like, uh, I, I, I really... It, it hurts my heart to think about how he became the villain because they they share that one scene together where they're they're bonding over Brighton Rock. Yeah, they're and bonding just over like, music. It's great. This yeah. is just a bad set of circumstances. The tour apart some really fucking cool guys getting it together. You know, like ah, it was really disappointing. Um, yeah, but uh, Jesus Christ, the, the man can act. You know, and this this he was given. All the material he needed to play the. He this. can act with the right director. Yeah, exactly. And I think Very we've true. seen this. This is a flash of genius in this one for me because I've seen Ham in, in other films and I wasn't particularly impressed. Mm. I was like, oh, he's just Don Draper someplace else. <laughs> this was out of character for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought finally we get to see that this guy actually does have acting chops. I 100% agree with you on John Ham. Regarding the um the the women in the film. I do feel a little bad about their roles. Uh, I, I, the metaphorical readings works a lot, and they do the best they can with the, the stuff they're given, I think. But uh, the downplaying of the, of the female characters to mostly plot devices 
It does irk me at times. I mean, I think it works for the romance narrative. Uh, you know, I think it works on that sort of reading. But when I think about just playing the narrative straight and trying to comprehend in this 21st century film why Lily James's character just totally and utterly buys that change, it doesn't work on every level, is what I mean. Uh, I, okay. I'm not saying it has to, but I think one of that it should work on is the straightforward blockbuster, and you shouldn't have to question why she jumps on board other than your pre-existing knowledge of that's how romances work, <laughs> you know? Uh, I get it, but, I mean, you gotta give right credit for her not being a damsel in distress. I think that she willingly got on board with this because she saw something of herself in him. Sure. You know, both being trapped in a certain way. Obviously, he wasn't talking about it much, so you can call me out on that, but I feel like there's a certain charm to their relationship that's, like... Maybe, yeah, a little bit, how can I put it, juvenile in the love at first sight aspect. However, she does put herself in harm's way. She doesn't necessarily wait for him yeah. to, to to take her away or something like that. She is working, you know, mm-hmm. she's making a living, she's doing her things, and I thought that was great. And um, Ilsa's character, I forgot her, her character's name. Darling. I thought she was great because if you look carefully throughout the entire portion that she's alive she's the one calling the shots oh absolutely john ham basically goes wherever and, and like he's just like he disrespected me what and he, he goes after it. like basically john ham's character is a trained dog throughout the entire film yeah. and then once she's gone he's let off his leash which is why he goes insane and so i thought that it was kind of cool for them to be in positions of control of their own destiny if you will. I just, and these are the choices that... I would argue then that, yes, that's true, but they both work in service of male characters. You know, they don't exist beyond the reach of the narrative for themselves. There's no woman in the narrative who does that. Not in the way that there's a Bats, not in the way that there's a Doc, not in the way that there's a Baby, who, yes, is tied to Deborah in a big way, but also has his own story and his own consequences that you can take totally separately from her. You can't do the same for Deborah, and you can't do the same for Darling. It all has the implications of what they do to and for men. Uh, okay, then maybe Wright is commenting on that situation uh, through what you were talking about in terms of the use of music when they're actually exchanging. And he says, oh, hey, you know that, that song Deborah from this band? What was the band? Uh, T-Rex. Do you remember? Or, yeah, T-Rex. T-Rex, yeah, there is that. You know, And so essentially what he's saying is like, there is a narrative for you. It's just not expounded in the way, you know, and she says, yeah, but every song's about you, baby. I think Wright might actually be pointing out the fact that there is an unfairness that comes with regards to women yeah, that's and good. men. Ah, no, I, I, and I so, do like that. I, I'm, 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 as I'm saying, I'm not saying it's, um, it's, a total, it's a total loss because the, the two characters... They do get some decent screen time. They um, and uh, as you said, especially with Darling, she does play a major role. I, you're right again. The, the damsel in distress thing. There is this point near the sort of finale in which Lily James is the one trying to make the decision to just keep going. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know there's a strength of her character that definitely isn't defined by Baby. But there's, I, I would say that the narrative continually finds roadblocks to give Baby an advantage over her. And okay. in one case in that her following him isn't justified strongly enough on a straightforward narrative basis to really be considered beyond a metaphorical understanding of how these things work. I, I, yeah. I find that lack, it, it irks me every now and then when I read the story back to myself uh, and, and also the idea of how it works on a blockbuster standpoint just for general audiences. There's a point where homage and, and referencing previous material can still negatively affect audience members just for the basis that it is something that 
is being done before. And if the commentary isn't loud enough, you know, you're, you're not really seeing it, then you're just walking away with an example of a film that gives us malnourished female characters, tries to make okay. a point of it, and we would have to scrap at the understanding, but it's nowhere near as loud as you're hearing all the other messages. You you know, the fact that we've it's a footnote on this episode should pretty much give you that exact reasoning, you know. Yeah, definitely. And we haven't talked about the man himself, Kevin Spacey, in the film. And uh, at first, when I was watching the film, I was like, there's Kevin Spacey. Being Kevin Spacey. But, <laughs> being Kevin Spacey. But at, at when he starts writing on the board and he starts detailing his plan, I was like, there's Doc. I couldn't believe that that I actually saw him just I was like, oh, fuck it. He's actually acting. Yeah. I could actually tell his character at this point, because when you're watching Kevin Spacey, I mean, he was in a movie called 21 uh, with uh, the, the dude from across the universe. And I was like, oh, you're just Kevin Spacey now. It sure. sucks. You know, and then he pulled out Frank Underwood and I was like, there's Frank Underwood. I love that. And to see him be able to break the image of Frank Underwood and go into Baby Driver and just yeah. be Doc. I was like, fucking hell, this is amazing. I'm very happy to see a guy that's just not winging it anymore. He could clearly phone it in and everybody would be like, really oh, Kevin could. Spacey's in the movie, which is what my parents were like, oh, we like Kevin Spacey. We'll yeah. go see that. But I actually saw him put on a performance that was actually good. I was like, oh, good. He's actually a character. Yeah, and that's one of the things, uh, one of the few decisions I really liked. I like that the mentor, as, as bad as he's implied, does get a redemption arc. That uh, yeah, that really does work with the story, and I'm very happy about that. I also like that um, the adoptive father isn't killed for some poor payoff, poor dramatic. <gasps> what a beautiful story that was! Yeah, that, that was relationship very is very touching. Brilliant. I'm sorry just, I didn't bring it up before. Yeah. Very beautiful. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it and it doesn't overstay its welcome, but it definitely has its point in the story in regards to baby uh, and their relation I, it's just it's really touching and i'm glad it wasn't used some bullshit you know that he could have died off screen he could have been shot down just to, to, to amp up the the tension of the drama none of that happened and i'm just so yeah. pleased how it worked out because that is that's, that's a lazy decision waiting to happen definitely i 100 percent agree and i mean i think that if we go according to the 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 what i had talked about a little bit in terms of trauma you know i, I you could say that even him as someone who's mute has been through so much that he's now rendered speechless. He can't communicate using words to, 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 to really explain how he's suffering inside. And baby, you know, he, he can say, just don't make, don't do these things. Yeah. Don't go into crime. Don't do that. You no know, answers, it would be a just crime general for you advice. to actually do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when he comes home and he puts on the music and he can feel it on the, uh, you know, he's like, oh, this is a great track. I can, I can, I can understand it when he's playing the baby track yeah, on, on yeah. the, uh, the, the uh, speakers. It's such a wonderful relationship. And so I think that, you know, killing him off would have been, like you said, a very lazy thing to do mm-hmm. because that, that character has clearly been through enough in his life. Absolutely. And he needs a break and that break comes in the form of baby actually giving him a, a little bit of like, like I'm taking care of you. It's my turn to take care of you. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Foxx was on another, he was in another movie sometimes. Uh, I think he was a fun character. He seemed unhinged, but at no point in the movie did I not see Jamie Foxx. Yeah, I agree. I guess when I think about it, I hadn't seen Jamie Foxx actually play this character before. I, maybe he has in his career. Uh, okay. But I can't think of it. I can think of a number of people that he might be egging, you know, like Denzel Washington-esque characters. Uh, right. You know, I could see that sort of element of it. But I can't actually, I, I can think of some unhinged Jamie Foxx characters like, you know, Django, but I can't think of this character. So I guess this is new ground. 
at the same time, it felt so familiar that it, it was distracting. Yeah. And that's weird because this film is full of familiarity as a notion. And yet this this was the one that I was kind of like, you know, it's it's maybe it's just because it wasn't as entertaining beat for beat as it should have been. On, on paper, you know, Jamie Foxx plays Nutcase. I guess my imagination went places the film reviews. Possible. I mean, to me, he seemed to be playing the same character he was playing in Horrible Bosses. You know, and so... Well, I it, mean, kind of. I mean, the, the idea of that character from Horrible Bosses and how he thinks exactly. of himself, I get you, yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, I like... And I mean, I didn't like him particularly in, in Amazing Spider-Man 2, but, I mean... If I look at a performance like in Collateral, he was phenomenal in Collateral. Oh, yeah. I thought his vulnerability really seeped through the screen. And I was like, this is a great guy. So I, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know if Jamie Foxx was just like, yeah, this is what crazy looks like. And like, maybe you should dial it up just a little bit. Maybe dial it down from Amazing Spider-Man 2. But dial it <laughs> yeah. up from what you did in, in Horrible Bosses. <laughs> yeah, I would say it was maybe a little more dramatic than the film required for the role. It should have been a little yeah. more uh, lighter just in, in general, uh, whereas it was played f- shockingly straight. And that kind of jarred with me a little because there was always a bit yeah. of whimsy in each of the other characters, including John Barthels. There you go. That's you know, a perfect like, way to say it. He yeah, plays it right. just unhinged enough, but it's also, it's kind of funny just how bad he is. But you know, he's still a threat that we never get to see paid off. But, you know, he's also, he's quirky. I just feel like sometimes maybe he was reading the lines a little bit too deadpan when he could have gone up or down at certain places. But that's just me. That's just me. No, I agree. That's it. So, and Lily James, I thought she was great. Her smile is infectious. <laughs> She's such a beautiful girl. I mean, you see her smile and you're like, ah, come here. <laughs> She's, such a, <laughs> such a darling. I think that I want to see her in more movies. I think her, her performance definitely embodies hope, much like the character is supposed to be a hope for baby. Yeah. So I get the... She hits that chord perfectly, and uh, the only thing I'd ever seen her in, um, I know she's on, on British TV quite a lot, but uh, she was in Cinderella, uh, as Cinderella in the, oh, in the, in the right, remake, right. and she's a phenomenal Cinderella, but you know, it's it's not a role that has a lot of meat to it, she brings a lot to it for what it is, uh, mm-hmm. and you see her potential in romantic roles, I maybe would have liked to have seen a little more aggression from her character but i can't fault her for that uh right i think i would have liked to see her play a more active part in the action she does at the end a little bit but not a lot mostly kind of sidestepping decisions more than actually taking arms and i would have liked to have seen her go there because i know i have this feeling that she's going to be fucking incredible once that rule comes along uh right but yeah as this sort of sweet decision maker she, she sold me entirely on this interest cool so that pretty much does it for me. I mean, is this a movie you would recommend? Oh, yeah. This is just something that um, is going to keep getting better analysis as time goes on. And let's keep going. As you said, it's as a bookmark film, it's a great way to put it. Because it is definitely going to be this year. It's definitely going to be this point in time. We're going to check back on it every couple of years. If we're still doing the show, we're definitely going to be like, oh, where are we with Baby Driver now? We can definitely throw a little word in here or there. Because we're always just going to be at the back of my mind. That was a point where things need to be continually read so that, you know, we have better understanding of where we are and how films reflect the society we're in and how films are made in general and where that goes. There's so many balls to juggle here and Baby Driver is right in the center of them. We just have to figure out which hand to juggle it with next. Very cool. Uh, and I agree. I agree with you 100%. This is a film that I do recommend. Although when I was on Nerd on Nerd, I explained that uh, to me it was very much a cinephiles film. My parents and and Leslie enjoyed the film, but at the same time, they they felt that there was something missing, and that something missing is is the fact that, like I was saying, it plays a little bit 
surreal and it's not necessarily the type their their cup of tea yeah right. if you will and but for me this is candy and um i'm glad sometimes that now i'm getting old so i can't have candy too often but i'll take this one this is one that i i, I want to keep for myself so it, it's really good uh i'm happy to see edgar wright in um in great shape yeah and absolutely this is just I hope he can continue from here. This is a great film. And I'm hoping that it keeps making money because this will only bode well for future installments. People will be like, okay, look, we gave him a little bit of leeway. He did a lot with it. Baby Driver 2. Don't do Baby Driver 2. Learn nothing from this decision and make Baby Driver 2. I fucking dare you. (laughs) Yeah, that, that, uh, you know, I'm not the petition type, but maybe I'll sign that (laughs) in. Don't do Baby (laughs) Driver 2. Or, or, you know what? Do it it in in, uh, 20 years. The same way as Tarantino might be gearing up for kill bill three there's always that thing about romantic novels that you know you don't see the recourse it has on everyone around the main characters exactly selfish bastards i agree (laughs) all right so anyway shall we close this out sir let's do it man all right so thank you very much for tuning in to season three episode one we hope you guys enjoyed our little take on baby driver throughout the entire summer uh, like uh, people have been constantly uh, sending us uh, more feedback and i want to say give a big shout out to uh, alejandra uh she's at sick underscore six six on uh twitter yes lexi miranda as well uh fook this which is sarah (laughs) jane uh david hart as well i've had really fun exchanges with them there's another one called melissa i don't know what their twitter handle is but uh yeah they're the, they have these pj party massacres now which is really really hilarious it's fucking hilarious it is really great and so they've been a really fun uh uh group to follow so follow them as i said before david hart even Shiga, sheila now who's changed her 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 name to giggles galore yeah, which is hilarious. yeah so yeah just a big shout out to them big shout out to the guys at in session uh we haven't forgotten you guys which is you know we're busy doing other shit as well Absolutely. so thank you so much uh for your support still and that's about it. Uh, Lee. Yes. Uh, you can follow me at Big Pick Reviews on Twitter, and you can see my website, bigpicturereviews.co.uk. We uh, we have loads of stuff planned for Big Picture Reviews in the near future, and it's it's always constantly growing and getting more involved, and we're still using it as a spot to continually teach ourselves to write reviews. So uh, if you want to yeah. see that in progress, some of us are getting really good at it. So there's that. Otherwise, on Twitter, you can follow me. I'll be posting stuff i've got more screenwriting shit to be doing in the next month and you can keep on top with me on that and by following me on twitter you're invited to the exclusive club of people who need to tag me in things for me to read them so absolutely do that i would love to read whatever you're pandering these days uh it's the only way i ever see anything uh i usually share it with other people just for the sheer value in that you you cancel tweeted me of all people so do that uh, i look forward to reading your your stuff let's 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 create a dialogue why not <laughs> cool my name is jason michael you can find me at atlantic sc on twitter uh be sure to like our facebook page we've gotten a couple of new people following that that's great we've gotten great news as well i mentioned it so you guys want to seek that out go visit the facebook page to get our updates on the awesome news mm-hmm. i'm going to be attending the fantasia film festival uh this coming weekend and uh, I'm hoping to get you guys a little bit of reviews on what I was talking about uh, in that post. So go uh, be sure to read up on that. 
So that's it for us this week. I want to thank you guys again for tuning in. Don't forget to give Lee a follow at Big Pick Reviews and myself at Atlantic SC. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you found the podcast. I don't necessarily need, need to tell you guys that we're on iTunes or Google or Stitcher Radio, although I just did. But yeah, so big shout out to all of you that are turning in, tuning in right now. And uh, that's it for us. We're going to see you guys next time. We'll decide what movie it is. You guys will know soon enough. Take care. Bye. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.